politics never really sleeps. Congress is in the middle of a, a sort of a sus- period of sustained gridlock. Uh, there are no major legislative initiatives, at least on the floor. And we're, we've got some special elections that we're looking at, too. However, it's never too early to start thinking about 2018. Joining us today is Jonathan Allen, co-author of Shattered, uh, about Hillary Clinton's doomed campaign. And we're going to talk a little bit about the 2016 race and how it can figure into some of the 2018 calculations that we're already seeing take hold. John, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you're, you were in the middle of sort of a whirlwind tour. I, I should mention Shattered is a New York Times bestselling book. Uh, at, at one point, you know, like it was difficult to get copies of it because so many people were, were looking for it. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly compelling read for anybody trying to make sense of what happened. Uh, anyone who's interested in, in your first book uh, with Amy uh, Parnes, uh, HRC, which came out a few years ago. And we also talked about it uh, at, uh, uh, at Roll Call. And, you know, it, it's but it's also it has some lessons for, for 2018. But before we get to that, let's talk about some of the, you know, just as you're watching the 2016 race, on you know, sort of unravel uh, as, and you've been watching it from the very beginning since before she was even a declared candidate. Um, what what were some of the I hate to call them highlights or lowlights for when, you, when we're talking about like a, something that is sort of a study in, in failure. But what are some of the big, you know, as a political reporter, as somebody who's been doing this for decades now? Uh, oh, my God, we're middle aged. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to drop that for people who thinks that, that Jonathan and I are these. <laughs> my kids <laughs> think I'm cubs. old. So. <laughs> yes. Uh, but like what are what are some of the things that stick out in your mind? Just like those top level things from from writing this book, from covering this campaign, which will you know, this this won't be the last book written about this campaign. I think that, you know, sort of one of the big takeaways or one of the big things to consider as you uh, revisit the race is the degree to which Hillary Clinton did things before the race even started uh, that clouded her uh, her campaign the entire time. And by that, I mean the email server. Uh, she, she likes to talk about, and other Democrats like to talk about, uh, Jim Comey, the FBI director at the time, uh, coming out and interfering in the election, essentially injecting himself into the election. It's important to remember when they talk about that, that none of that would have been possible if not for her having uh, set up this uh, email server, which, you know, I, I essentially conclude, and and I think Amy agrees with me on this, uh, I know Amy agrees with me on this, that the desire there was to prevent people from seeing her email Uh, through FOIA requests, through Freedom of Information Act requests. So she basically didn't want people when she was running for president to be able to uh, see what she'd been emailing around. Obviously, that backfired pretty badly. And in addition to that, and more importantly, uh, she ended up with classified information on this server. Uh, That news that she had the server broke in March of 2015, a month before she even launched her, her bid, and was a cloud over the campaign the entire time. Uh, and this, was it was never really resolved. Ne- never <laughs> and, really resolved. It's right. still unresolved to right. some extent. It's still uh, still uh, sort of part of uh, the the political zeitgeist right now, which has moved, of course, on to Jim Comey and his firing and the investigation into Russia. But um, you know, sort of a, a lot of these things are intertwined. Um, and then the other thing is, she made these speeches to Wall Street banks. Uh, basically made private speeches for money, a lot of them to people who had been donors to her campaigns, a lot of whom had uh, lobbied the State Department while she was there. Um, And she was getting personally rich from these private speeches, which, by the way, pretty much everyone who gets out of politics does that. Uh, And some people who get out of politics and get back into politics do it. And I've never seen it be quite such an issue, but also this was a populist year. 
Right. And to go to Goldman Sachs and give a speech and not be willing to release that to the public, what are you saying to the bankers? Uh, Bernie Sanders used it against her. Uh, Donald Trump used it against her. And it fed into this narrative that she she's always hiding something. And in this case, she was hiding something. Same thing with her emails. In that case, she, she had at least attempted in the beginning to hide something. So uh, I think, you know, my sort of base level, the first thing you have to understand about this campaign uh, and the idea of it being doomed is that she did these things that uh, these self-inflicted wounds or own goals, if you're a soccer fan, um, you know, that followed her throughout. And one of the things that I have been particularly sort of fascinated with is that here we are, we're, you know, one of the most, we, we are the most powerful country on earth. We have the fourth largest population on earth. We have the biggest economy on the planet. Um, we have an increasingly diverse population, uh, thanks to immigration, thanks to just like people's attitudes changing. I mean, politically diverse, racially diverse, culturally diverse. And yet, you know, I, I saw this, uh, you know, graphic a little while ago, just right right before Emmanuel Macron was, was sworn in as president of France, and that Macron is the only leader of a, of a G8 industrialized country who's younger than the median age of his, of his countrymen. He's 39, and the, the median age in, in France is like 40 or 41. But I understand, Trump, Trump I understand is, older women like him. <laughs> yes, I, I guess so, including his wife, right, who's 24 years older um, or 27 years older. Or something. It, Trump is at the other end of the spectrum. He's 32 years older than the median age in the United States. How is it that we ended up with a 69-year-old woman, a 70-year-old man, and a 74-year-old man who were the three, the top three, you know, candidates in in Clinton, Sanders, and, and Trump. Like, how, why, what, from your perspective on the campaign trail, why is it that we saw this? I mean, there was just, it, it, and it, because it seemed like there was, particularly in the Clinton campaign, this over-professionalization. There were so many people involved in it. It was like almost a, like a Hollywood blockbuster just waiting to bomb. Yeah, well, we did uh, sort of revert uh, to the baby boomer generation, right? I mean, Barack Obama is uh, younger than all those boomers. He was a uh, somebody who was of a different different generation, almost a Gen Xer, right? It's not quite clear. Yeah, <laughs> somewhere it was in a weird well, little zone. Barack Obama is very good at appealing to people on a variety of levels, right. uh, and uh, you know, uh, and I think one of them is on the age levels. Is he one of us? You know, is he an older person? Is he a younger person? Uh, you know, I think that was helpful to him. He he seemed mature enough to the to the baby boomers and uh, hip enough to the to the younger crowd, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's I, I think it's relatively anomalous. I mean, I'm not I'm not drawing too many great examples in history. Obviously, uh, you know, JFK when he was killed and Lyndon Johnson took over as president, that was a uh, a move back to a previous generation. Uh, a little bit, but not, I mean, not entirely. That doesn't happen very often. And so the question, how did we get there? Uh, you know, there were 17 candidates on the Republican side. Many of them were a generation younger. Indians, right? <laughs> right you had, I mean, you had, uh, you know, Marco Marco Rubio, Rubio and Ted Cruz, right. uh, who were definitely a generation younger than, than Trump. Uh, and on the Democratic side, you didn't really, I mean, Bernie Sanders got into the race not thinking that he was going to beat Hillary Clinton. Right. Um, he just wanted to make sure that there was somebody that wasn't allowing her to bring back the sort of the Democratic Leadership Council days of, of centrist Democrats right. who wandered across the aisle as much as they stayed home. Right. And uh, there was this just weird thing of 
you know, the, there there wasn't even anybody who looked even feasible. Like Sanders didn't really look feasible as a, as, a, as a national candidate. And Martin O'Malley, I mean, I remember when I was in Iowa reporting on the caucuses, there were, you know, he came in not surprisingly third. And instead of talking about what was next, I mean, the, the, there were some of the stories like surfacing that he was having difficulty getting on the ballot in Ohio. Right. I mean, and it's just like that doesn't sound like a really with it together, you know, type of bench to, to rely they on. They don't have a bench. And part of it, I think, is that they've had this baby boomer generation and even even a little pre-baby boom. If you look at Nancy Pelosi or, or Steny Hoyer in the House, uh, they're both pre-baby boom. Joe Biden, pre-baby boom. Harry um, Reid was, you know, Harry they, they were the pre- silent generation. Right. They, yeah, so yeah. They, like, I mean, I think that, you know, when Demo- younger Democrats ran by you know, by their very nature, they were less accomplished, right? Mm-hmm. They had fewer fewer lines on their resume. And I do think that that matters. You know, Barack Obama beat Hillary Clinton, and she was kind of a resume candidate in 2008. But I don't think Democratic voters in their primaries ignore resume. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Barack Obama won anyway. I think he was a better candidate than, than she was. But, but I do think they care about resume, especially at a time when there's all this anti-establishment, anti-government sentiment. Mm-hmm. Sure, there was some of that in the Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders was able to gain some traction from that. But I think the Democratic Party also believes in government. And so some of the anti-establishment stuff is rejected by the Democratic Party. And I think a part of that is them looking at taking government seriously and keeping government running and, and wanting to fund it at levels higher than a lot. Uh, the, certainly the Republicans do and a lot of independents do. I think part and parcel of that is looking at people who have been in government before because they respect government service. Right. So they're not saying like, hey, let's find somebody who's never been in government before. They're looking for people who have done these jobs before and can do them again. Um, and, you know, Sanders has been in Congress for, you know, a quarter of a century. I'm not sure that he got a whole lot accomplished in Congress, but right. but even he was as an uh, you know an anti-establishment candidate has been in Washington for you know a good portion of his adult life. It's kind of like Paul Ryan says that he just can't wait to get home to Janesville every every weekend. But it's like, hey, dude, you've like spent your entire adult life here. I mean, yeah, you're, no, he was like a bar, he was a bartender <laughs> right, at, uh, at, at Tortilla at, Grill at or whatever. Right, and then he was in a think Tortilla tank. Coast. Yeah, and then he was a staffer, and then he was a member of Congress, and now he's Speaker of the House. And I I don't know, I I'm. I'm skeptical of people who say they hate Washington and spend all their time in Washington. Yeah, I think, is it Amy Goldstein of the Washington Post that just wrote the book Janesville uh, about Janesville, yes. Wisconsin? Yeah. She's spent more time in Janesville lately than, <laughs> than Paul Ryan has. So pitching it forward, I mean, we, we've got a, you know we've got special elections galore uh, in, in the next few weeks in South Carolina, in Montana, and in Georgia. Uh, the Democratic base is fired up. They feel very good you know, about their chances. They feel good about their re- recruiting uh, for a while, it seemed it was an, it was enough in some of these special elections to be just anti-Trump, and now we're actually seeing a little bit of of uh, equivocation. People are getting a little bit more nuts and bolts about healthcare or things like that. But what are some of the lessons? It seems like there is a danger for Democrats uh, at the strategic level that they can just run an anti-Trump campaign and win back the House and and you know maybe get to a stalemate in in the Senate. Is there? Do you think that there is that hubris that exists in the Democratic Party? You know that, that still, even without the Clintons, you know, sort of pushing the pushing the cart forward like they did in 2016. I mean, one of the things we report on the, in the book is the strategy that Hillary Clinton had of disqualifying Donald Trump, and how it was largely successful in getting voters to believe that he wasn't fit for the presidency. Certainly, the Democratic base believed that, but I think it was something like one fifth of his voters basically said he didn't have the right the right temperament to be president and voted for him anyway. Mm-hmm. And so that's a perfectly good example of how diff- how difficult it can be to win if you're 
uh, entire campaign is based on discrediting someone else. That said, uh, I think congressional races are inherently different because it is an opportunity for the electorate to tell the president to uh, realign right. or to you know to make some changes. And while millions of people voting at the same time don't speak with one voice about what that change should be, they often feel that they can send a message to the president by electing uh, people of the other party. Uh, usually in midterm elections, uh, we see big pickups for the minority party in the House. Uh, the Senate's a little uh, can be a little different just because only a third of it is up in any given year. So it depends on which states are <laughs> are right. up and which senators are up. But it would be surprising if the Democrats didn't pick up a significant number of House seats. The question would be, can they get to that two dozen that they need to to actually flip control? And and it does seem that you know they're they're I mean they're very much focused. They 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 don't want to talk so much about 2018 like from a you know the leadership level. But on the day of the healthcare vote. Uh, you know, in in uh, earlier this month, when the when the House narrowly passed the healthcare, you know, American Healthcare Act, the Democrats were chanting "na na na na, hey hey, goodbye." It seemed a little early to be cocky about that, and I noticed that a lot of the people who are doing it are in incredibly safe districts. You know, the, 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 right, it doesn't they, matter. Right, to them. they're winning by forty, fifty points. Yeah, I mean, I think when you make it about the next election, you undermine your points on the substance. Mm -hmm. Like, they are better off making the point that Republicans are doing things that they think are bad for the country and then running against them on it, not talking trash on the House floor right. and perhaps looking churlish. Um, you know, there's a history of this. Uh, the Republicans, as, as you know, in, in 1994, I guess, chanted, you know, Na na hey hey goodbye at Marjorie Margolis Mizminsky. Right. or it was bye bye Marjorie was what they chanted at her right um, after she cast the I think it was was it the budget vote or yeah it was a budget it, vote yeah. and then and, they and then needed her they, yeah right and she's uh, uh, her uh, her son uh, Mark Mizminsky now married to Hillary Clinton <laughs> Chelsea Clinton uh, I'm sorry to Chelsea Clinton <laughs> yeah, it's uh, not it's yeah, not no. it's not a Macron thing yeah <laughs> no 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 sorry about that. Uh, I got all, all these Clintons like floating around in my head. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the Democrats are best off just kind of making their substantive points. And look, they have an issue with the 2018 election, too, which is that uh, if they win power back, Nancy Pelosi becomes speaker again. Steny Hoyer becomes majority leader again. Jim Clyburn becomes assistant to the leader or whatever his position was in the, you know, or whip, I guess, in the in the majority these folks are all in their 70s and right. they're mid to late 70s, right? Um, you know, I think Hoyer and Pelosi were born in 39 and 40, right. climbing around the same time. They've had this same leadership lineup for as long as you can remember. And at some point, the Republicans are going to run on that, right? So the part of the Republican campaign will be anti-Nancy Pelosi. Right. Uh, and they did that very effectively in 2010. They nationalized Pelosi and they made it uh, made it very difficult for Democrats uh, to to win. So, I'm of the belief, having watched Nancy Pelosi, that she's about as skilled as it gets uh, inside the legislative arena and inside the political arena in the House. But the Democrats are not offering faces of youth or right. um, you know faces of uh, new ideas. I mean, Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer are basically leftovers of the FDR Democratic. I mean, they they grew up in the shadow of FDR Democratic politics, um, and and that's not what the kids are talking about these days. 
And so, you know, it, it is, I mean, and we are sort of talking a lot about, about Democrats, but it does seem like they are the kind of some of the more interesting actors here. Uh, there's this one passage in, in your book where you, you mentioned this, like, very hardball kind of uh, play where Chris Van Hollen was in a, a, a competitive primary with uh, Donna Edwards, a member, fellow member from the House in, in Maryland. And there was this understanding that this was unfolding in the middle of the presidential campaign, too, in, in Maryland, that, uh, you know, Van Hollen wasn't exactly encouraging black turnout in, in Baltimore, because that would be to Edwards' advantage. Uh, and And that Hillary Clinton was furious about it. And like that. And the thing that seems it's it's so compelling because there's such, uh, you know, a, there's such a, you know, competitiveness here. And all that all that they're missing is is what the election might be about. Right. <laughs> and it's interesting. I mean, there's this sort of like game of game of uh, thrones or house of cards, I guess, kind of moment where her aide tells her this is their view. Van Halen would, would describe this differently. Uh, for sure, but but her aide says to her, you know, Chris Van Hollen's trying to suppress the black vote in Baltimore, and uh, can, how, what 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 words am I allowed to use on the on the podcast? Uh, just go with uh, just the first letter of that particular. Yeah. Word. So and and <laughs> Clinton is like waving to like people across the street and smiling, and through her gritted teeth, she says, "F Chris Van Hollen." <laughs> Basically, you know, he's. Not, I'm not going to let him suppress the black vote because for Clinton, she needed black turnout in Maryland to run up the score on Bernie Sanders. Now she was going to win Maryland one way or the other. As it turned out, Van Hollen probably would have won Maryland one way or the other, but his was a lot more dicey at the moment. And she was basically like, "Hey, I'm the presidential candidate," uh, and her her folks uh, sent back through the grapevine to the unions the message that they should they should want to have a friend who's the president, not a friend who's a senator. Now you talk about hubris. You talk, you know. Uh, as it turned out, Chris Van Hollen's in the Senate and Hillary Clinton's not president of the United States. And my guess is the unions that sat on their hands feel pretty smart about what they did. It, it is kind of fascinating and, and an example of losing the, you know, the forest for the trees um, and, and a, and a storyline that's going to keep going. So, John, thanks so much for joining us uh, on the Big Story podcast. So it's always a pleasure to talk to you about this, this stuff. We could we could go on for hours, but I think we'll uh, we'll probably leave it at that. Thanks a lot, Jason. Thanks again. I'm Jason Dick. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. Thank you for listening.